If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. With Indeed, everything hiring is all in one place and it makes it so easy. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences each day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash podcast. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to Show Me How Good It Gets. I'm your host, Malvika. Hello, beautiful people. I'm so excited about today's episode and this conversation. We had it a couple weeks ago, and I've still been thinking about it, internalizing everything I learned, and I love sharing those kind of things with all of you. This is Alyssa Basist. She is an essayist. She is a humor writer. I love women in comedy. She's the editor for the Funny Women column on The Rumpus, which in itself is so cool to me. I DM'd her a little bit ago, and I said, I know you have a book coming out in September 2022, and after it comes out and I read it, I would love to interview you for my podcast. And she actually just sent me a copy of her book via email so we could do the interview earlier and maybe you guys could pre-order the book, which is so exciting. First of all, I love the title. It's called Hysterical and I think the cover is so cute. So that itself was a win. And then the dedication on the first page said for all the other crazy psycho bitches. And I was like, okay, I'm in. This is, you know, my thing. Growing up, Alyssa's family, boyfriends, work, school, TV, they all had the same expectation for a woman's voice. It was always less is more, and she was called dramatic or insane for speaking her mind. She was accused of overreacting, of playing victim for having unexplained physical pain. She was ignored or rebuked like women throughout history for using her voice quote-unquote inappropriately by expressing sadness or suffering or anger or joy. And this feels so innately a part of womanhood to me, which of course I don't want to be the case, but I think that's why I was so drawn to her writing, to her, to the name of the book. And I'm really excited for you guys to hear this part of the conversation. I'm going to split it up into two parts because we talk a lot about shame. And that's one of the things I probably get the most DMs about is like, I have this feeling and now I feel guilt or shame for it. And I I call things clean pain and dirty pain. Clean pain is having the feeling. Dirty pain is the feeling that comes after. And that's what shame is. It's really, as she says, delivering the second arrow to your heart. So I hope this conversation feels illuminating in some way. I do want to include a trigger warning for kind of the end of this conversation um, about self-harm or suicide. So if that feels not something you can handle, I totally get it. And we'll see you on the other part, part two of this episode, which I think is just as good, if not even better. Um, I love Alyssa. Go order this book. I really enjoyed reading it. 
And I'm excited for you guys to tell me your thoughts on this episode. Okay, get to it. I love you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm so pumped. Thank you for being my first invitation. I can't believe that's true because you're so cool. But uh, I also wanted to confirm how you say your name. Is it Basist? It is. You got it. You're one of the few people on earth who has ever pronounced it correctly. Oh my God. No, but I did research. I, I thought it was Bassist. And then, and then I was like, I don't want to screw it up. So I listened to another interview you were on because I assumed she would have asked you and then I heard it. Oh yeah. It's, but it's very rare that people ask me. And I just did a panel last week for LitFest as part of Lighthouse Writers Workshop and everyone was pronouncing my name wrong. And I corrected them. And I was like, I never correct people. I just prefer to change my name to whatever you want me to, you want it to be. Um, but I'm, I'm trying to not do that anymore. Yes. And then like, I got this huge round of applause and I was like, oh, really? <laughs> Okay, if you're giving me the validation, then I'm going to keep doing this. Oh, I'm actually so proud of myself because everyone was calling me like Eliza. I mean, people can't get the first name either. And I'm like, it's Alyssa Basist. It goes together. Alyssa was easy for me just to read it. It's pretty phonetic. And then I read it as Bassist. And then I was like, I I can't screw this up. I need to go do my research. So I like went through a couple things. I found it. And I think... I do the same thing where people will say my name and I'm like, oh yeah, that's perfect. Even though it's like kind of off. And I did it for a long time because I genuinely didn't think I cared. And then I think subconsciously it was just making myself feel more and more palatable for everyone else. And you start compromising in one thing and then before you know it, you're compromising on everything. So I'm I'm trying to be better too, but it's hard. It's really hard. And I don't know why I just think it's rude to correct people on the pronunciation of my name. I'm like, I don't want to be difficult. Yes. Oh my God. Being difficult, which you also talk about in the book. And I, I, I'm so excited. I love one of my favorite things is reading someone's piece and then talking to them because I go in with just so much knowledge about their life and they know nothing about me. And it's completely one-sided, but it's exciting for me because I feel like I know you. I'm, I'm so excited to be known. Wait, now I need to know how to pronounce your name. Okay. I have a pretty easy, so, um, Malvika, like I'm going to the mall. Okay. And then bot, I say it like robot. Got it. Malvika bot. Perfect. And you killed it. And it's funny because both my parents actually say my name differently. So there's, I don't actually know. This is how I like to introduce myself and how I like to be called. And it's what works. I mean, my, my family and I, we all disagree on if it's Alyssa or Elissa, because it's written Elissa, but we say Alyssa and we don't know. I guess it's whatever mood we're in. Yeah, I like to think of different pronunciations of your name as different versions of you. I love that. I love to have different versions. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, this is so exciting. First of all, I want to say your book was incredible. I I devoured it in one weekend. I kid you not. And I never read off my laptop. I don't like it. But I read this entire thing on my laptop, curled up in a ball on my side. Incredible. Wow, thank you so much. These are my first compliments. They mean the world to me. It's also so interesting to hear how fast you read it because like I've been a reader my whole life and been trying to write this book my whole life and um usually books take me years so and when a book is really good it takes me for me it takes me such a short amount of time so I'm like two days that means I wrote such a good book no you wrote such a good book genuinely and I I'm not just saying that because I, I got to read it early I'm saying that because 
I think I don't really read books fast unless they're like a light romance on the beach kind of thing. Um, then it's pretty easy breezy. And this is very well researched and it's a lot of heavy material, but it's packaged so well. And one thing I actually wanted to talk to you about was how you made it feel so personal. It doesn't feel like this big piece of feminist literature where I have to now get up and change the world. It feels like I'm talking to a friend about our own problems with shame and with silence and with our bodies, but I'm still learning so much and it's so well-researched. So I thought you towed the line there so wonderfully. Thank you so much. I'm The benefit of working on a book for 11 years is I got to do so much research. And a lot of the research was just me reading Jezebel every day for 11 years um, and being aware of what's going on around us and reading all of these books, um, like from the 80s, 90s. And then every year I was writing the book, more books were coming out. So I could, I had the luxury of research um, and then I had to find, lose, and refine my voice to make it conversational. I felt like I, I have like I give good email and good text message, and I'm I like I feel like that's my real, true, genuine voice in those mediums. But then I get to a word document, and I have forgotten how to write, forgotten how to speak. I am just like that, just like I. I, I, uh, um, and I had to figure out how to write an, an email in a word document and like get that conversational tone and transfer over like my G chat voice into my book writing voice. And a lot of times I just had to trick myself and I wrote a lot of the book in emails. I love that because that's how it reads. And now we've exchanged a couple emails to each other and you email write just like you book write. And I can say that because I've done both with you now. And no, so you killed it. I, I just think it's amazing that you can make such heavy topics feel so full of levity and full of like friendship. It really felt like I was reading a friend's work. And maybe that's because, you know, we exchanged a couple emails and I was so excited, but I think it would feel like that for any reader. And I wanted to ask now that I have you, how you were inspired to write this book, whether it was 11 years ago or inspired to write certain chapters along the way, what was kind of that push, like the white space that you saw that you were like, I'm, my book is going to serve this purpose. Yes. I wonder. Um, so I like growing up, writing was never a career, but I always loved writing and I wanted to be a lawyer because that's how I thought I could get paid to write. And then in um, college, I was taking creative writing classes and doing so much better in those classes while I was getting D's in my pre-law logic classes. And um, I finally, my senior year, was able to get a minor in creative writing. So I was like, okay, this is, I can actually get college credit. This is somewhat valid. And I was seeing all of these literary magazines pop up, like McSweeney's, Bitch Magazine, and they could have interns. So I was like, I could be an intern. This was so thrilling to me um, that this was a potential career path. So I followed that, um, but I was always too scared to use my voice or to think my voice was any good or my opinions, thoughts, feelings were any good. And I thought I would just work for writers. And that's how I could 
be in that world is just be exposed to them, be proximal to them. But I never dreamed of doing what they did until I um, worked for them. And then I had a terrible experience and I quit so that I could write a novel. I tried that. It was the most miserable experience in my entire life. I'm I think that's when like my real clinical depression kicked in was trying to write that novel. And I had really unrealistic expectations for myself. I thought I could finish it in a matter of months just by setting a deadline. I had no patience with myself whatsoever. Um, the second it got difficult, I gave up. I was just always giving up. Then I thought I needed to go to grad school to have some structure and help in writing a book. And that's where I would get inspired to write a book. And I just wanted to write a book, but didn't have any book in mind to write. So I got to grad school and I remember I went to a very, I took myself to a fancy restaurant and I ordered filet mignon and like a bottle of wine. And I was like, I'm not leaving until I have a book idea. And I got one. <laughs> and I was just thinking of what is my book? What do I write about? What do I care about? What am I obsessed with? What are my passions? And I figured out that I was obsessed with my ex-boyfriend. <laughs> and so much of my writing was about him, whether it was like online writing, email writing, journal writing, it was all about him. And I was like, he, he is the key. And then I was also really obsessed with media, films, TV, books, that's, that's where I would, I was like never without words to describe those things. And they stirred within me the most amount of feeling I had ever experienced in life. I just felt alive whenever I watched something, consumed something, or wrote an email to my ex-boyfriend. Um, so I worked in grad school on this book and I don't even know if I felt inspired at the time. I just felt like I needed to have a book to be legitimate, to get the license to voice my experience. And it was just met with disdain everywhere. Like my classmates were... I want to say they were humorless assholes, but I was a humorless asshole as well. Like we were all humorless assholes to each other. Um, and it just seemed that no one, no one cared what I had to say. So then I didn't care what I had to say. So over these 11 years, I was just battling with trying to convince myself that I had something to say. Like inspiration didn't even factor in. I first had to just get over this mental obstacle of being convinced that no one cared. And um, throughout, I was just writing about what I was obsessed with and noticing the topics I kept being drawn to. Media obsession, ex-boyfriend obsession, feminism, depression and suicide. I'm real fun at parties. <laughs> Um, and I couldn't not write about those topics. And I just kept going. There was something that was driving me. Um, and, uh, and after 11 years, I was starting to see overlapping themes and what I was writing. 
And at the same time I was writing, I was also querying agents, breaking up with agents. Agents were telling me what direction to go in. So I would go in their direction. I was trying to write a book that would sell that the marketplace wanted. So I was going in so many directions that weren't my own. And it was really hard for me to figure out what it is exactly that I wanted to write about and that I wanted to say. Finally, the pandemic happened and it was like, fuck it. I'm just going to write the book I want to write and I'm going to self-publish it. And then I was free. And then I wrote the whole book, Hysterical, which was a collection of things I had written over the past 11 years. It was what I was feeling at the pandemic in the pandemic at the time. It was driven by things that agents liked that I also liked, but really it was just finally the book I wanted to write. And I queried agents, four of them, just as like, sort of like a fuck you, I did it. Like, <laughs> like, um, that's what, like, like three of them, we'd been in touch over the years. And I was like, look, I finally did the thing that I wanted to do. And I did it on my own and I did it without you. And they, um, they were all into it. And I was like, wait, really? Like just when I had given up now was the time when people were interested. Um, so finally the book that I wanted to write was the book that these people wanted to read. So that's a very long winded answer to what inspired me to write this book. I mean, that's, I don't, sorry. (laughs) No, you're all good. I just think it's amazing because there's a nugget of gold there, right? Like anytime people DM me or message me, like, how do I choose what I want to major in? What job I want? Anything like that. My first piece of advice is pay attention to what you pay attention to. Because often our brains already know what we want to do and we're just not labeling it because we're not identifying it. And I think that's exactly what you did. You said, here's the things my brain always gravitates to. And I'm just going to write about that. It was almost like a prayer. It was just writing like prayer, writing your stream of consciousness. And I think that's incredible. And then my follow-up would be, I'm sure you had to edit this book like crazy. And at what point were you like, okay, it's done. It's perfect. This is what I want to do. Because I think as a perfectionist or as a creative, you have a vision in your head of what you want this creative thing to be until it's not quote unquote perfect. You don't want to release it into the world. So how did you finally say, yes, this is it. I'm going to do it. I haven't yet. That I don't think that's ever going to happen for me. Like okay. I think of the book now and I'm still editing it in my mind. And when I read it on the page, I'm editing it. And the more the news cycle happens, I'm adding to it. Like I finished the book and then Roe v. Wade was on the line. Then the her Depp trial had happened. Um, and it was like, oh my God, I gotta, I gotta add this to the book, but I can't. I tell my students that writing is never done. It is only due. And for me, what really stopped me and dragged those 11, 11 years out was the need to write a perfect book, but no book is perfect. And I would spend months tinkering with one sentence that would, that I would end up deleting. And I was like, I can't be so precious. I'm never going to get it done. And it turned into, for me, a part of my obsessive compulsive disorder for which I sought treatment. And a lot of my treatment was writing exposures in which I 
let something be bad. I let typos remain. I set time limits for myself where when I was done, I was done and I couldn't tinker endlessly. And um, though I had been writing the book for 11 years, my publisher had an accelerated timeline for the publication of my book. So I got a lot less time than usually authors will get. And she gave me so many edits that I ended up rewriting the book about two and a half times. So I feel like I wrote the book in 11 years. And then I also wrote the book in a handful of months. And it's like, I needed that time to prepare me for the sprint rewrite and editing I had to do. Um, And I just really had to get out of my own way because I could have revised that book until I died. And I, (laughs) yeah. um, So my biggest, I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to like go into a lot of advice on how to revise and how to get out of your own way, but whatever. Well, I want to say, I think books like this live in the cultural context. Like if someone reads this in 10 years, they're not going to be like, oh, well, she didn't talk about this, you know, so the book isn't perfect. But at some point it has to be done. And my favorite quote ever is doubt killed more dreams than failure ever did. And it, I, I have written it up and put it on my wall because I do that even when I'm editing these podcast episodes of I want to edit and edit till it's quote unquote perfect. But an episode out there will be listened to and an episode sitting in my drafts will not be listened to. And I just have to kind of drill that into my head. And it's so hard as a creative, but I want to tell you, even when we were emailing, you sent me the arc and I read it and you were like, oh, sorry for all the errors. Every time you see an error, just know it's going to be fixed. I was, I read it. I was like, girl, there are no errors. It's just a really good book. I I guess, you know, because you've now seen the edits and you know what it's supposed to be. But as a reader, it's just an incredible book and it lives in the moment it was released in. Um, and I'm sure in 10 years, you're going to read it and say, oh, I missed this and I missed this. But then you can write a new book. And I think that's the beauty of it. Yeah, I think like um, I had all my eggs in this one book basket and I had to redefine my perspective where it's like, I'm not writing a book. I'm a writer who's going to keep writing. And this is the book I wrote at this time in my life. And I'm going to keep going and not let myself get so hung up on what I didn't do well or what I failed to do, because that was my mindset for so many years. And I wasted my own time and I needed to, I needed to learn this lesson the hard way. Um, The lesson of like, perfect is the enemy of good. And all of those great cliches that end up just being absolute truth. Doesn't it suck when these cliches are completely true. You're like, oh man, everyone was right. <laughs> they know yeah. more than me. Yeah. <laughs> and you, and you just like find it out through living your life, why the cliches endure. And, um, I, yeah, I, I had to spend 11 years figuring out that like, even if my book were perfect in my standards, so many other people would find fault with it. And if the book were imperfect, as I see it is now, other people are never going to notice. Completely. Yeah. And the people who want to like hate something are going to hate it no matter how perfect it is. Again, quote unquote perfect, because there is no such thing. But I want to tell you, I think I might be your target audience. Um, as you said, forever, the crazy psycho bitch. Um, 
and that's me. And I loved it. So, and I'm not just saying that. I mean, I emailed you like after reading one chapter, like I'm loving this so far. So I'm really excited for people to get their hands on it. Um, and I think there's a lot of things that really resonated with me about this book, but probably my favorite was the way you dealt with shame because I get a lot of messages from people who are like, Oh, I, you know, my boyfriend and I broke up and I kind of get jealous and I feel so guilty or I feel so shameful or I'm jealous of this other girl and I feel so guilty and shameful. And I always think there's clean pain and dirty pain. Clean pain is being hurt or sad about something. And then the dirty pain is the shame or the guilt after the feeling about yourself that you can't quite shake. And so how do you deal with guilt or shame or these like really quote unquote dirty feelings? I listened to a Tara Brock podcast once. Oh, maybe love her. I love her so much. She's like my mom. She's my podcast mom. Um, it actually might've been on being with Krista. Why can't I remember Krista's last name? Sorry, Krista. Um, <laughs> She was, she was interviewing like the mother of mindfulness, whose name I also can't remember right now, but I do remember really well where she talked about the second arrow where her house burned down and she was not upset about it. And the firefighters were like, you're the first person we've ever seen who is so calm and not beside herself with grief. And she was like, my house burned down. I'm not going to have this deliver the second arrow to my own heart by being upset about it and by making it worse for myself. And I was like, Oh yeah. I was like, so the experience, the bad experience was enough and I don't need to blame myself for it. I don't need to deliver the second arrow to my own heart. Um, so that was one thing where I was just working on being my own friend and, um, because I, I was never my own friend. I was always my first and greatest critic Mm -hmm. narrating and criticizing everything I was doing and making it all my fault. And after like decades of therapy that helped me quite a bit, um, with not adding the thoughts to the emotions And Tracy Clark Flory, my best friend of all time, she recommended this great book called Feeling Good. That's about CBD and these 10 thought distortions and talking back to your thoughts. So whenever I have these feelings of shame, I talk back to them. Like that's all or nothing thinking. There's a lot of gray area in between where I can forgive that I acted that way, et cetera. And also I think being an artist is so, um, it's such a smart move when you like lived a flawed life because you have this opportunity to turn the worst things that have happened to you into beautiful moments of like insight to give to other people to not feel the way that you have felt. So I like to look at all of these experiences and be like, that's actually, it's a, it was a bad experience, but it's a good story. And there's humor to be found in it and insight to be found in it. And when I'm like my writer self or my teacher self, I'm my best self where I'm able to see that this can be used and it doesn't have to be something that ruined my life. 
It can be actually a point of connection with other people. It can be character building. It can be the hot stove moment that I learned to never do again. It can be so many things besides this debilitating shame. And I, I also realized that there were so many people who always wanted me to feel shame and they were sort of orchestrating their narrative to make me feel bad. And once I was able to see that they were the architects and not me, I was like, fuck that. Like they don't get to tell me to feel bad about something they did that I reacted to. And shame, it is bullshit. And it is a narrative that was written by other people, that was written by a patriarchy that's meant to slow us down, keep us small, make us afraid, and make us hate ourselves. And the more research I did and the more authoritative writing I did, the more I was able to see what bullshit propaganda it is and that I need not subscribe to it. And I have to remind myself all the time of this because I always want to default into the bad feeling and the shame spiral and turning it on myself and having no compassion for myself. And it's like a muscle I have to exercise to get myself back to, no, that's bullshit. That's a thought distortion. That's patriarchal propaganda. That's what he wants me to think. That's what's been keeping me small. That's what's been keeping me from not living my life. And I talk about this girl I I babysat who was a little sister to me who kills herself. And that was a real, um, that tragedy was a huge clarifying moment to me because I had wanted to die so much of my life. And once she did, I was like, no, I am never, I, I am, I never want to die. I want to not only live, but be alive and to do whatever I can in this life to take care of myself and the people around me. And she succumbed to shame and she didn't need to, and I don't need to. And that thinking about that and thinking about her always makes me turn around those feelings and turn around It's like, I think the shame made me want to die because I wanted to escape the shame. And now that I can see, no, all I need to do to escape the shame is to turn it around and to talk back to it and not kill myself or hurt myself or feel bad about myself. That, that's just not the way to do it. And seeing someone who, who really did that, I now see that that's not anything I ever want to do. It's not something I'll ever romanticize. I'll never take it lightly. I take it as like, it's my responsibility to turn that feeling around. Yeah, I think othering it, right? It's treating it as, how, how would I talk to my best friend or my mom or my sister if she came to me with this feeling? I wouldn't be like, oh, you awful person, right? Why do we talk to ourselves like that? This person that we're supposed to spend the rest of our lives with, we beat down like no other. And we wouldn't do that to someone we loved. Yeah. I, yeah, there, there's a lot of parts of your book that I just kind of want to reach through the page and give the writer a hug because it feels so 
And, and it's weird because I've had those same feelings and we just don't treat ourselves with the same kindness we extend to the people we love. And I think the second we can start doing that, there's this trend going around right now of people looking at baby pictures of themselves and being like, what I say, these mean words I say to myself, to this little girl. And I think that's, that thought pattern changes lives because we really wouldn't, we wouldn't say this to a bright and hopeful young person. So why do we say it to ourselves? And that's a wrap. Thank you guys for hanging out with me and listening to this week's episode. If you want more, follow at Show Me How Good It Gets podcast. I read all the DMs I get on there. And then my personal Instagram account is at MalvikaBot and my TikTok is at MalTalks. If you're listening on Spotify, please leave us a rating, preferably a five-star rating. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, um, I hope you can write us a fun little review and write us there as well. Um, Once again, thank you guys for hanging out. See you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.